Good evening. Greet you in the name of Jesus again this evening. And uh, if you would, turn in your Bibles, Colossians 2. Or if you want to say it from memory, any volunteers for tonight. And uh, I did not plan to preach on this passage. I just pulled it out of here because I thought uh, there's so many things in here that if we could commit it to memory, we would be better off if we could have those words right there in our minds. So anybody want to volunteer to say a verse, two, three, of Colossians 2, 6 through 15. Good. Thank you. Anyone else? It's all right. It's just Thursday night. We have a couple more evenings to go yet. Let's read the verses together, starting at verse 6 all the way to 15. Colossians 2, verse 6. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. I must commend you all again as a congregation that you can read together so well. I think it's the best I've ever heard. Um, Wow. All right. I'll ask for volunteers again tomorrow. And those of you who wanted, that started with the memory, if you want to pick up where you left off and finish it, that would be fine too, if if the whole thing is too big of a bite. I understand that. Well, the song that we sang just before I got up here 
had a phrase in it that introduces the topic that I want to talk about tonight. And it said this, content whatever lot I see. And then I forget how it goes, something about his hand, his hand that leads me. I want to talk tonight, my title comes from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. And the title is Godliness with Contentment. We're going to move away from doctrinal things tonight and talk about something very practical. Contentment is a human struggle. If I were to ask you to raise your hand, and I'm not going to, uh, but if you were to analyze the question, am I content with what I have, I wonder how easy it would be to raise our hands. Can you think of areas in your life where you are discontent? It would probably be easier to raise our hands there, right? It's pretty easy to think of things that we wish we had um, or wish that certain circumstances were different than what they are. So for a springboard here tonight, let's read 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 through 10. Um, Well, we're breaking into a thought there. I didn't see that right at first. Let's jump back to verse 1. 1 Timothy 6, let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. Now this is what Paul is telling Timothy, that this, this relationship between servants and masters Um, the whole thing of honoring masters, being content, and all that. And then he moves into this and he says, if any man teach otherwise. If someone's going to come along and say something different than what I just said and not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, into the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw thyself. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in perdition and destruction." in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Last night we asked the question, does the Bible have answers for life? Does the Bible have answers for the issue of material wealth? And we're going to focus pretty narrowly on material wealth tonight and talk about our godliness with contentment. Tonight, I believe, I am talking to a group of wealthy people. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but if I were to ask the question, are you wealthy tonight, uh, we'd probably be a little hesitant to actually raise our hands and say, yeah, I'm wealthy. And yet, I think we all grasp, we have a sense of the world enough that we can grasp that this term is quite relative and that, relatively speaking, all of us here tonight are wealthy. I don't know what the statistics would be, where we would fit 
uh, in the world uh, uh, percentages. But even the history of this country, we are much better off. I read recently that most of us live on a level even higher, a higher level of a standard of living higher than that of uh, Rockefeller. And he was supposed to be extremely wealthy man, right? Now, I understand that was years ago, but if you think about it, uh, we are on a trend of a, a higher and higher standard of living. I'll give you another little illustration of that. Some friends of mine there in Pensacola, they, they frame houses for their occupation, and they are building a house for a 28-year-old man. They're framing this house 12,000 square feet. He has two children, I think. 12,000 square feet. If I do my math right, that's about a quarter acre. Right? And the question they ask themselves as they frame this house, when will this be the standard? And we say, no way. But just think, think about it. Your grandparents, some of you older ones, I, I guess I can call you older, Brother Keith. What size house did they live in? Do you know? Would I be wrong in guessing that it was less than 2,000 square feet? I'm sure of that almost. How many of you live in a house that's 2,000 square feet? That's not actually that big, is it? In fact, 2,000 square feet, when you get seven, eight children in there, it starts to get a little cramped. You know, we need some more room. So when will 12,000 square feet be the standard house? You hear somebody at your church is building a house and it's 12,000 square feet. Oh, that's about right. <clears throat> Will it ever get there? I, I kind of hope not, but it does kind of, the question kind of comes. It's like, what, will it? Will that ever be the case? I think all of us would say that's pretty far out there, and it's probably true. But I think all of us can confess, too, to having a fair amount more than the basic necessities. Paul writes here, he says, having food and raiment, let us be there with content. I know I have more than food and raiment. I know that. I have more than enough food. I have more than enough raiment. And I'm still struggling with the issue of contentment. And all of us have things that we simply never use. Uh, for instance, when we moved to Mississippi, we carried two pairs of ice skates with us. And they're still hogging up some of the square footage of my house. Maybe that's why we need 12,000 square feet. Because we, why do you need ice skates in Mississippi? By the way, though, we did use them one winter. Uh, it's pretty hard to believe, but in 2014, we got about two inches of ice, and it stuck to the road, and we skated up and down the road. Nobody was driving. It was a lot of fun. Um, But that's just a case in point, and I never did sell them on eBay or anything, and I probably, the rats took up residence in them. Um, so we have things that we don't need. What are ice skates worth? I don't remember what we paid for them, but it's, it's a scary thought to think that what we paid for skates that languish in the closet could likely feed a family for a week in certain areas of the world. 
That's not a comfortable thing to think about. For me, it's not. So the purpose of this message tonight is to encourage us and to remind us that God's kingdom is not of this world. And since this is the case, we need to live our lives in such a way that we do not become entangled with the things of this world. And we need constant reminders. I don't think I'll tell you anything new tonight. You know all of these things already. But it's an issue that we face every single day in our affluent society. And we need to just be reminded of it. I need to be reminded of it. So maybe I'm just preaching to me more than anybody else. But let's see what the Bible teaches us about material things, the world around us. Let's go all the way back to Genesis and get a foundation. And we're going to look at a number of Bible concepts about material things. Genesis chapter 14, verse 19 says, this is breaking into the middle of the story about um, Abraham meeting Melchizedek. And the story isn't about this concept, but the concept is in the story. It says this in verse 19, And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the name of the Most High God, which delivered, hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. The concept I want to get from that is that God is the possessor of heaven and earth. God owns the universe. And we find that in a few other places. Maybe we'll just turn to those verses so we can um, see that. But if you go to the book of Psalms, we find um, David saying some true things about God in Psalm 24, verse 1. He says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now, we wouldn't say it quite like that, but basically the earth is the Lord's and everything in it the world and they that dwell therein. And Paul picks up on that thought in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 26. He quotes that. And so he, this concept that everything we see around us goes back to God. He's the creator. He's the owner. He, he is the boss, if you will. He has everything. He made it all. Now, the fascinating thing about God is that he has chosen... And this is the second concept we're going to look at back in chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Let's read verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. So we have this basis here, another concept about material things, the world around us. God has chosen to give man the authority and stewardship over this creation. Why he ever decided to do that, knowing the mess that we would make out of it, is kind of astounding. But he did give us that responsibility, and it's a very heavy responsibility, and one that we should take very seriously. Now, humans are so selfish that we almost always abuse the creation, and use it for selfish. Just for instance, the 12,000 square foot house. How many trees had to be used to frame that house when you really don't need 12,000 square feet? Just, just think about that. Is God happy with that? I'm not God, so I don't know, but I have some ideas of what God might say about something like that. Now, maybe they're going to turn it into a homeless shelter. That would be great. Um, maybe they have some plans like that, but... You kind of doubt that. 
especially when you see the pictures of the stairway that goes up. And it's kind of kind of unlikely. So that's the second concept. God gave man authority and stewardship over his creation. Let's go all the way to the New Testament to get our next concept. Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, verses 10 through 12. This is the context of the um, steward that cheated his master is what he did. And uh, it's, it's really hard to put all of that together. But anyway, what we want to get is the concept at the very end of that story that Jesus told in verse 10. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if ye have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? The concept that I want to get from this is that material wealth is a trust given to us. It's like the test. And Jesus very, he says it in a question, but he says, if you can't handle temporal material goods why would God trust you with eternal spiritual goods why is that a lot why would that's not logical and so we we learn here that it's actually kind of a trust as well as a test that we have these things to use and God says we're going to see how you do with that and depending on how you do with this will actually determine how much you get to handle in the spiritual realm. And that's very sobering, because if we aren't doing too well with material things, then maybe that's why Christianity in America is so flaccid and so cold. Maybe. Is there a connection? Possibly. Luke 16, since we're here, let's just jump down to verse 13 and get the next concept. So that's the third concept. It's a trust given to us. The fourth concept from the scriptures is in verse 13. No servant can can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now that's a King James word, just simply means money or material goods we find that thought also in Matthew chapter 6 same it's the same wording just some more thoughts maybe we should just turn to that it's not like um, it's that hard to find so Matthew chapter 6 verses 19 19 through 24 Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore... The light that is in thee be darkness. How great is that darkness. No man can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So this concept, the fourth one, is that material goods 
competes for our loyalty to God. And I don't know why. Well, maybe I do know why. It's hard to put it into words, though, but I think it has something to do with the deceitfulness of riches lies in the, the belief that if we have enough money, we don't need anything else. If you have enough money, if you have enough assets, you don't need God. That's, that's the deceitfulness of riches. I'm not saying that's true. I'm just saying that's what we believe. And I believe that's why it competes. Because if we can somehow hoard up enough money that we think are assets in whatever form you want, that we have somehow insulated ourselves from any disaster, who needs God? It's that simple. And so it competes with our loyalty. And Jesus very explicitly says, you can't do it. You cannot have two bosses. One's going to rule. And he tells us how to know. In verse 21, he says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. We want to switch that around, and we want to say things like, well, wherever my heart is, that's where my treasure's going to be. No, that's actually not what Jesus said. He said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. We can't switch it around. So we have to decide, are we going to have earthly treasure or are we going to have heavenly treasure? And that's found in verses 19 and 20, those, those concepts. And Jesus isn't being vague here. He's actually being quite, um, it's pretty easy to understand. It's just hard to live. Let's go back to the Old Testament to get another concept that the scripture teaches us about material goods. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, Ecclesiastes 5, verses 10 through 12. Um, and now, Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, at least that's what we understand. And if anybody should know, he should. Is that right? Solomon should know. So this is what he says. In verse 10, he that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. And what good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? Think about how fascinating that is. What good is all this stuff except just to look at it? That's what he just said. It's, it, to put it in a colloquial way, we would, that's how we would say it. He says, what good is it saving the beholding of them of their eyes? But anyway, he goes on and says in verse 12, The sleep of the laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not let him go to sleep. So the concept that we're learning here, the fifth one, is that material accumulation feeds on itself. You can never put fire out with fire. You can never satisfy greed with more money. And probably all of us have experienced it to a greater or lesser degree that that is true. That we've at least prospered enough to know that when we get to this point, we think, when we're really, really poor, we think, well, if we could just have $1,000 that would stay in the account. Well, when we get the $1,000, well, that's not quite enough. Let's try for five. And so when we get five to stay there for a while, then let's try for 10. Right? It's kind of how it goes. He that loveth silver will not be satisfied with silver. 
our text where we uh, started in 1 Timothy. You don't need to turn back to that, but uh, if you want to, you may. I want to pull a concept from there. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6 again. Another concept about wealth. We're going to pull from verses 9 and 10. I won't reread them, but look what it says. Persons that want to be rich have a lot of problems. In fact, they end up erring from the faith. Verse 10. The desire to be wealthy, this is the the sixth concept. The desire to be wealthy creates spiritual problems. I know that there's people who kind of accidentally get wealthy. They, they just do some things that they're at the right place at the right time with the right product, and it, it just happens. So I don't know what to do with all of that. They, they have some issues they need to work through. But if our desire and our driving motive in life is to be rich... I have only one thing from the scripture to tell you, and that is watch out. You are about to wreck. I don't know how long it's going to take. Might be years, might be months, might be days. But this desire will ruin people. Number seven, another concept that we learn about wealth in James chapter 2. My brethren, James 2, verse 1. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come into your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit here, sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do they not blaspheme that worthy name by the which ye are called? If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. One of the hazards, one of the concepts that we get about wealth is the tendency to be partial. Why is it that if a rich man comes along, his word will carry the day, and a poor man doesn't? I don't know why. Because it may just be um, that the man is nothing more than a cheat, the reason he's wealthy. Um, Maybe he's wealthy because he has worked hard and has made very wise choices, and he is worthy to be listened to. Maybe that's true. But James is saying we should never be guilty of honoring the man's wealth. We need to learn to honor people for who they are, whether they are rich or whether they are poor. The poor wise man, I mean, the poor man might be wise or wiser than the rich man. 
And then he goes on and says, think about what rich people do. They're the ones that oppress you. They're the ones, and this is in the context of persecution, of course, but if you think about it, um, if, if we would ever have to face persecution, I don't think that we would ever have to worry about it coming from the really poor people. It's going to be the rich and powerful of the world that do the persecuting, right? It just is that way. James has another concept, number 8, I believe. Uh, James 5, verses 1 through 5. Go to, go to now, ye rich men. Weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh, flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped together treasure... I'm sorry. You have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and have been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in the day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. Okay, riches, a concept that we get from this is that unneeded accumulation will testify against us in the judgment. And I don't know what to do with ice skates in the closet. I'm actually that serious about it. When we accumulate things and we do it and we don't use them and we just heap these things together, it says that they will witness against us. That scares me just a little bit. It really does. The last concept that I want to pull out to look at is in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? If we are hoarding selfishly our wealth, and we know that there are needs around us that we are not willing to assist with, we cannot claim the love of God in ourselves. Because the love of God is a love that gives and gives and gives. One writer says it this way, God's love has no because. God loves just because he's God. When it talks about our love, it always says we love him because he first loved us. But God's love has no cause. And so if we want to learn to love like God, we will give unselfishly of whatever it is that we need to give. And we're focusing on wealth, material wealth, money, if you will. Giving is something that when God truly gets hold of us, it's a spontaneous thing that we just do. And we're not even sure when and how we're doing it. And there's no record keeping. There's no worrying about whether your name's on the bench and, you know, whatever. It's just a giving. It doesn't matter who knows. It doesn't matter if you even get the tax write-off. Now, I will be honest with you and very transparent with you. I know that I pulled a lot of verses out to put wealth in a negative light. 
but I do believe that this is the tenor of the New Testament. Someone said that when old men preach on this subject, they go to Proverbs, and when young men preach on it, they go to the New Testament. There are verses in Proverbs that would seem to balance what I just said or possibly even refute some of the things that I just said. And I don't even apologize for that because, again, I think that we really need to get an understanding of what God wants out of us through the life of Jesus Christ. And when we look at his life, we don't see a lot of Proverbs happening We see a lot of the New Testament happening. It's just a selfless giving, 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 giving. Jesus didn't even know where he was going to lay his head. He certainly didn't have a 12,000 square foot mansion to go to. Okay, so if if we want to become like our master, and that's the only, that's, it's enough that the servant is like his master, right? Then, then I think the, the New Testament's where we really need to go. I will also be very transparent with you in this sense. I found this message much easier to preach when I was a school teacher than I than I am as a business owner. It's it's just true, it, and it's something that I grapple with a lot because. Maybe it's more necessary now. <laughs> Thank you. That's probably what it is. It's more necessary. You understand where I'm coming from on that. Thank you. So, what do we learn from this? What are some practical things that we can learn about these concepts? The concepts are only as good as we live them. So let's get really practical. Let's meddle here again tonight. I have just a number of questions to help us analyze how content we really are. Not very many questions. Number one, what level of worry do we live with? This is a question that will help us, and we find that in Jesus' teachings back in Matthew chapter 6. Right after he tells us not to lay up treasures on earth, And to lay them up in heaven. And right after he tells us that we can't serve two masters, he says in verse 25, Therefore, since you can't serve two masters, since I want you to lay up treasures in heaven, this is what I want you to do. Therefore, I say unto you, take no thought for your life. What ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? Behold, the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you by taking thought can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And then he just talks about the grass of the field. And then he comes down to verse 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. How much do we worry? Can we go back to the Lord's prayer and pray, give us this day our daily bread and then relax? 
Or do we pray, God, I'm glad I have enough bread for today, but I really want you to provide bread for the next 10 years and make sure that it's enough that it's actually more than bread. We really would like some ice cream too, and we would also really appreciate if we have three cars and a 12,000 square foot house. Okay, I'm, I'm exaggerating to make a point here. But isn't that the way we approach God? Isn't that the way we do things? We have bread. And maybe the way God's going to provide our daily bread is just giving us enough health to go out and work another day. How much worry do we live with? Hebrews 13.5 says that the basis for contentment is that God will never leave us or forsake us. It says just like that. Maybe we should actually read that verse. I like to read them so that you know I'm not just making things up. Um, But in Hebrews 13, verse 5, let your conversation be without covetousness, or let your living, let your way of life be without coveting, and be content with such things as ye have, for he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. So that song that we sang, that stood out to me because it says, I'm going to be content with everything because I know Jesus is leading me. Really? That's the foundation for contentment, that Jesus is in charge? I've got some work to do. Because I think that it's better when I'm in charge. And I think it's better when I know what the projected income for the next six months is going to be. And that, that's just life. But the Bible tells me that I need to not worry about six months from now. I need to be content because Jesus says, I'm going to never leave you or forsake you. Second question that um, might help us analyze our contentment. What is the motivating drive in our lives? Back to Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Matthew says, or Jesus says through Matthew's pen, seek first the kingdom of God. When we are too busy accumulating wealth that we cannot sit down and take time for God personally or collectively, and what I mean by that is prayer meeting and Sunday evening services and all those boring church, you know, it'd be better to be out earning a living or more than a living. If we're too busy for God personally or collectively, if we're too busy for God to take opportunities to spend time with that annoying neighbor that's going to talk an hour and I've got things to do and places to go and people to meet, and he pulls in the driveway, what are you going to do? You've got a choice to make. Are you going to be content and believe that God is going to provide the daily bread even though he just hogged two hours of your time? Or... Are we just too busy? These are just some very practical things about seeking first the kingdom. What is it going to take to put treasure in heaven? We know what it takes to put treasure in the bank account. We know how to do that. That's really easy. But to put treasure in heaven just cuts across the grain because most of the time it's going to mean giving up some treasure on the earth. It's going to mean that you're swapping values. It's going to mean that, you know what, I'm going to take off work early and go to church. I'm going to take off work 
and go visit somebody that I know needs help. So what is motivating us? 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10, we talked about these verses several times. I'm just going to come back to them. He says that they that will be rich fall into hurtful lust. There's pain involved in seeking wealth. And if we are too busy to just relax with our families and friends and enjoy the simple things of life, just the simple, just watching the sun go down, if we can't take the time to do that because we are too busy, we are too busy. We are not content with the things that we have. Um, it's It's just taking too much priority. The third question to help us analyze our contentment. What do I fall out over? Let's go to Luke chapter 12. And read verse 13. And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. So, you inherited some money. You didn't work for it. Somebody else worked for it. And you didn't get what you thought was coming to you. Is that worth fighting over? If it is, there's a really good chance we're not content. You didn't have money in the first place. You didn't work for it. Nobody even stole it from you. It was somebody's grace to give it to you. How many people have fallen out over free money? Are they content? Is it it safe to say that when that happens that maybe they fall into the category of people that will be rich and this looks like an opportunity to be rich and... That's an inheritance. What about a business deal where you really did do the work? And the client picks on it. Oh, we didn't agree to that. And you're pretty sure you did. What are we going to do? Are we going to actually lose our Christianity in that moment and really let that person know that um, we need to have our money. I suppose there's limits to that. I suppose you can't work for free all your life. But you know what I think? I think our selfishness is such that we won't work for free all of our lives we won't do that. And so instead, I would like to just challenge us a little bit on our contentment. What are we willing to give up for the sake of just letting people know that you're not, I'm not going to fight over that? Besides, these clients, really, if you think about it, are probably only about every, ten, every tenth one out of twelve Right? It doesn't actually happen that often. You just remember them because it's really bad. And you forget about the ones that actually pay and sometimes even pay more than what you've asked. Um, 
So what am, I go- what am I willing to disagree or what am I willing to hold a grudge over? If, if I'm willing to let material goods create a barrier between me and another person, I'm suggesting that we have an issue with contentment. I think we have a problem if we're willing to let that come between us and rankle and to the point where we can't even speak peaceably to those people. In case you're wondering what I do with clients that don't pay, just so you know, I just stop going back to their yard. And if they want me to come back, then I'll ask them if they could pay. But um, I'm not afraid to meet them. And it's okay. I'm not saying I've attained. I'm just saying that's what I do. All right. The fourth question to help us analyze our contentment is... The simple question, what is enough? You're in Luke 12. Let's read from verses 14 to 21. After the man said, Speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance, he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be married. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The question to help us analyze it is simply, what is enough? This concept is so simple and yet so deep. I picked up a book just recently on this whole concept of what Christians ought to be doing with their finances. And it's not an Anabaptist perspective at all, but the man opens his book with this question, what is enough? What is enough? So what does that mean? Let's go down the list. Enough food. Got it. We have enough food. Enough clothes. We got it. Adequate shelter. We've got it. Enough in the bank. Mm, no. Enough stuff. Probably not. So do we have enough or don't we? The answer is actually most likely yes. From looking at you all here, I dare say you have enough. I have enough. So I just ask that question, and you ask yourself that question to analyze your own, your own contentment. How much is enough? What is enough? What does it look like when it is enough? Number five. Question, what am I willing to commit to to achieve a better life? Romans 13, 8 says, oh, no man, anything, right? Now, that I know that there's whole debates about debt and all that kind of thing. And I'll simply state that debt may not be wrong as in a moral sin that will send you to hell. But I don't know of a single place that the Bible mentions the borrowing of money in a positive light. Can, can, can you help me out? Is there a place 
I don't know, even in Proverbs, it doesn't come out positive, does it? I'm not trying to be smart. I, I would really like to know. If there is a place where it's mentioned as a positive, honorable thing, I would, I would like to know. But I don't think it is. The Bible always says, if you're going to borrow money, uh, you need to watch out. And the problem with debt, the biggest problem with debt, I think, is that it presumes on the future. We don't know. James says that we're supposed to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this and that. And so when we go out and we borrow money, we're assuming a lot of things. We're assuming that the Lord's going to give us enough health health for the, time, for the term of the loan. We're assuming the economy is going to hold and the business is going to stay good. Even if you're a school teacher, you need a good economy. It, we're just assuming a lot of things when we go out and, and decide to take on a lot of debt. And too many times, debt is used to increase the standard of living beyond what we would really need. And so to me, those two reasons are enough to be very, very, very cautious with debt. And so if we're willing to go out and max out what our debt-to-income ratio, whatever the bank's willing to give us, and we max it, and we say, we're going to just put up with this for 30 years or whatever it is, um, pray really hard before you borrow money but I think that what we're willing to commit to is an indication of how content we really are I really believe that the last question to analyze our contentment what am I willing to give you know there's giving and then there's giving Giving from abundance is not the same as giving sacrificially. Giving because there's something you're going to get in return is not the same as giving and knowing you will never see it again. And I take this so far as to suggest that even paying your school tuition is not truly giving because you're getting an education for your children in return. True giving is when you put that money somewhere and you know you will never get it back. Jesus puts it this way, when you invite people over for food and you feed them and you know you'll never get another invitation back. Those are the people that you're actually supposed to invite. You're not supposed to invite me because if you came to Mississippi, I would invite you back, right? I might be taking it a little far, but the point is that's true giving. That is true giving. And especially if you had to give up something to do it. You know then, and I know at that point, that I have truly given. And when we can do it, and we forget about it, we have attained to a Christian grace that's worth having. But if we struggle to give but it's pretty easy to buy a Mountain Dew. You might have an issue with contentment. Now, I want to talk just briefly about the issue of extravagance. In a discussion about contentment, when we ask questions like, what is enough? The question almost invariably comes out, if I can afford it, is it okay? So let's just imagine that I make $500,000 a year, which I don't. 
but let's imagine that I do. And I give 300000 of it away. Does that make it okay for me to buy a $100,000 RV and live on the other 100000 I'm asking the question, but that is the concept that most people have. If I can somehow alleviate my conscience by giving a whole pile, then I can selfishly hoard X amount for myself. Now, when I make $500,000 a year, I hope I can still say the same thing. Because some of the things that I said when I was a school teacher sound a little different than what they sound now. I just want you to know that I'm trying to be transparent with you there. But so many times as the income goes up, the standard of living goes up, and we wonder how we would ever do without it. But we used to. We used to do without these things, and we were happy. I guess we were. Um, Again, I would suggest that the Bible remedy for extravagance is to simply learn to give. To understand that God wants us to work hard. He wants us to have to give to them that need. He wants us to supply for our own needs. Get the word needs. And then he wants us to bless other people. And so as Americans with our tremendous wealth, we need to learn what God's kingdom values are. What would God actually want us to do with the amazing amount of wealth that we can pull together at the snap of a finger? And I know there's lots of efforts being done throughout the world. Could there be more? Could there be something I personally could get involved in? Well, the other flip side of this is I do not want to come across as idolizing the minimalist lifestyle. There is that subculture out there, the minimalists, the tiny house people, the the people that try to live very, 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 very frugally and I actually admire that. But what bothers me about it is that it, it becomes the religion. Let's never do that. If we're minimalist, I think we have a misplaced focus. If we're Christians that give a lot away and live without some things, then that's okay. You follow me there? There, there needs to be that... Um, that distinction that we don't live simply just for simplicity's sake. In conclusion, three things just to sum up. We're called to be Jesus followers and we're called to be content. Contentment is a choice that we make to accept what God has given us and to use it to his kingdom's advantage. And the way we use material wealth will directly affect our relationship with God in time and in eternity. Lord bless you all. I'm going to turn the time back over to the uh, ministry.